Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. We'll take on a new horse training or horse care topic in every episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the ride. I'm Heidi Malacco. I'm here with Julie Goodnight. And Julie, today we are going to talk about your cantering, the cantering issues that people ask you about the most. What would you say are your top three cantering issues that people bring to you and what help with? Well, I would say number one is definitely wrong lead. And um, and, and the canter is the, is the most complicated gait that way. So there's lead. Um, the other really big problem I see and get asked about is either a reluctance for the horse to pick up the canter or the horse going into a ground-pounding fast trot instead of the canter. Um, and third, I would have to say from from watching riders at clinics, third problem I normally see would be breaking gait at the canter, which to me, breaking gait period is, is sort of a, a really big mistake um, for the horse, but the rider often contributes to that. Sure. So let's kind of look at each of these with the idea that you have a horse that should know what to do. So you're working with a trained horse, not a horse that you're having to train for the correct lead or these issues. But really kind of the common things that somebody might be able to do as a rider to really make a difference in that horse. Because I know at your clinics, that's what you're so good at and you see so much is that Somebody comes in, they think they're having this huge problem, and there really are some kind of body position tweaks. They're just really clarifying that cue sequence that can help sure. with that. Because that most people right? know 99% of horse problems are rider-induced. And so it's always stuff the rider can do. Okay. So, well, let's go ahead and then and look at wrong leads. So why is being on the wrong lead a big problem to start out? Why is that something you don't want to be doing? Well, you know, in the overall scheme of things, it, it really isn't a big problem. The horse can canter on either lead. and uh, But when you're in an arena in particular or you're in a situation where you're circling or turning, um, it is more difficult for the horse to balance on, on the wrong lead. So um, it's a balance issue. And, of course, if you're in any sort of competition and canners call for, in most instances, there is one correct lead to take. So for competition, it's kind of a deal breaker. And it's kind of a horsemanship issue, too. You know, if your horse is following your exact and doing exactly what you're asking. You want him to be paying attention to your body language and your cue and doing that exact gait and stepping into that canter exactly the way you want them to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what can go wrong? What are the possible causes of that canter malfunction stepping into the wrong lead? You know, honestly, most of the time when people come to clinics and um, I'm asking them what they want to work on, and they say leads. Um, and I'll question them a little bit about, well, you know, does he take one lead and not the other lead or or what? Because if the horse takes the wrong lead both ways, that's pretty much certainly a uh, 
rider problem or a queuing problem. But the, the biggest problem I see is simply queuing. So the horse isn't clear on which lead you want him to take and you don't have him set up properly um, for the lead. But there's always a possibility if there's a physical cause for the horse. Um, so that's what you always have to look at first. And, and there I would be looking for any kind of old or new injury to the legs. And a lot of times um, chiropractic issues can, can come into play in leads as well. Okay. Yeah, there's definitely, I know with my horse, he sometimes doesn't want to pick up the right lead, and that's usually my cue to call the chiropractor and see what we can do, and, and then he's all right again. So, but there yeah, is certainly, that that he knows when it's a, certainly when it's a horse that um, normally takes the correct lead and has a history of taking the correct lead and all of a sudden you're having trouble with it, that's obviously a big physical red flag and and sometimes it's not even a current physical issue but if a horse has particularly on the hind legs um, uh, evidence of an old injury old scar uh, often if a horse had a, a bad injury to one of the hind legs then he got in the habit after that of favoring that leg so sometimes it's kind of not really a physical issue in terms of pain but more in terms of coordination because the horse is weaker to push off with that leg. Okay, but let's go back to someone's riding a trained horse, checks out with the vet just fine, and they're still taking the wrong lead. Talk to me about cues, and, and in your clinics, sometimes is it interesting to you to find out how people have been cueing their horse for the cancer? Like some people just kiss and expect the rest to happen. What, what usually is going wrong with a cue? <laughs> yeah, most riders can't really um, state how it is exactly they cue the horse to canter. And the canter is, because it's a complicated gait, and because you not only have to cue for the gate itself, but you have to cue for a specific lead. Um, the the cues are kind of all over the map. So there's a lot of variations to a cue. But um, the biggest mistake I see in leads, honestly, is is not clear uh, cueing and or cueing at the wrong place um, at, at the wrong time. So the horse pushes off into the counter with his outside outside hind leg. So if you're going to the right, uh, you want the right lead, and the horse pushes off into the right lead with the left hind and vice versa. So the most important aspect of your cueing that relates to the lead the horse takes is how his haunches are positioned at the moment you cue him. If his haunches are to the right, he'll take the right lead. If his haunches are to the left, he'll take the left lead. So the the way that you use your aids in the counter cue, um, you Generally, one of the predominant aids you use is the outside leg. You reach back mm -hmm. a few inches, and you get pulsating pressure there uh, with your Achilles tendon, and uh, ask the horse to step his haunches over. So if I wanted my horse to step the haunches to the right, reach back a few inches with my left leg, 
give a little pulsating pressure there. And, and generally the horse, certainly a trained horse, will step his hips to the right. Then you can, can give him the rest of the cue because he's now um, set up for the correct lead. So haunches in is the biggest thing. Um, also, you want to, uh, if you're riding in an arena especially, um, there are some places that are a bad place in the arena queue and some places where it's a good uh, makes the, the horse, makes it easier for the horse to pick up the cue. And, and I like, if I'm tra having trouble with uh, discriminating leads to my horse, um, I like to cue him right before the turn to the short side of the arena. And so what's most important wherever you do it is that you cue before a turn and not during a turn. Um, okay. What happens most of the time once your horse comes into the turn, particularly if it is an abrupt turn, he throws his haunches to the outside. So if he picks up at that lead at that moment, um, it's going to be wrong because his hips are to the outside. He's going to push off with the wrong hind leg. And, and that's that another exercise. I was just going to ask, that would be an exercise kind of to make sure that you're getting the correct lead, but would that be more, a little bit more towards training the horse to make sure, or does that help the rider to get the feeling of it? Well, um, both. It's a mechanical issue. The horse, he, he's, he, it's not really possible for him to pick up the correct lead when his hips are to the outside because his weight, he's weight bearing on the wrong hind foot. And, um, so if you, um, this is another reason why circling is not, um, in and of itself a great way to get the horse on the correct lead because if in pulling the horse to the circle, he throws his hip to the outside, uh, which often happens, particularly when you're going fast. Um, then again, he can't pick up the the lead. So, but if you bring him straight, and then right before the corner on the end of the arena, um, it's pretty easy to get him haunches in at that moment. So, the the big thing in cueing is don't bother cueing until your horse is mechanically set up correctly with his haunches to the inside. I want to go back and talk about the haunches in a little bit because I've seen you with that exercise. That seems to be more the this is a trained horse. You just need to slow down your cues and make sure that you're doing the right thing. When you're putting that leg back, I've seen you practice that with Dooley where you're just still at a walk at that point. You're not anticipating and getting real nervous or kind of speeding up your energy in your body. At that point, you're just gently moving his hip over and saying, okay, we're going to be in this position because a cue might be coming next. Does that sound right? Yes. Yeah. And then from that point, so walk me through once you do that haunches in and you actually have people just do that at the walk for a while, right? Just practice moving their hips back and forth and doing that first part of the cue? Yes, absolutely. And that's a communication issue. So between the rider and the horse, no matter how um, well trained the horse is or not, um, you, you you need to be able to reach back and, and get your horse to, to yield his haunches. 
and the horse needs to understand that cue, understand that it is a cue, uh, a cue to move its haunches, not a cue to speed up. And um, so I like to have uh, riders, or I'll do it myself as a training exercise with a horse, just walking straight, let's say, down down a straight trail or um, down the long side of the arena, just reach back, get a little nudge, and if the horse yields his hip, release it and pet him. Do it again, release him and pet him. Do it again a few times until the horse goes, oh, when she does that, I do this. And so then the first part of the counter cue is the way you need it to be, so haunches in. And um, for, for me, the the counter cue is outside leg to step the horse's haunches in. And then I just lift up and forward with the inside rein to help keep the horse from diving in to the inside when he canters. And then the actual cue to canter comes when I curl my hips and push with my hips in the canter motion, which is a motion like pushing a swing. So sequencing the cue is important. So leg, rein, seat. Um, I like to use a kissing sound. Um, You'll only use it for canter. Most horses will kind of perk up at that sound. Um, And so for getting, uh, for leads and good counter departures, it's really important to get clear on the cue. Um, so you cue, use the same aids in the same sequence every time. Um, outside leg, inside rein, push with the seat. And, um, and make sure the horse is mechanically set up. Uh, I would say, I'd venture to guess 75, 80% of people that mention they have a lead problem in clarifying and correctly cueing believe problem goes away. And that's what I just wanted to go back to that part first, because what you're talking about with the exercise on where to cue them, is that kind of the next step? If this didn't work on its own, maybe the horse has kind of learned to not take the lead, or like you were saying, maybe had an old injury or some reason that left to his own choice might have chosen the other lead. That can encourage them to pick up the lead that you want, but that seems maybe like a step to work on a little more training with the horse rather than to ask them for that first, that good breakdown of the cue first. Yeah. Okay. So then um, let's, I think that's great. I think that's, that's huge. And, you know, I always, I learn so much from watching other sports and, and I love watching raining and, and all the things that you do. And when you watch a raining um, program or some of the, the runs from the um, equestrian games or something like that, it's so fun to see how precise those cues are. And you can see that when a rainer gets to the middle of the arena, they really slow that down, move the hip over, very obviously move their legs in a different direction, put the rein forward and shift their weight. And I think so often people have some kind of nerves build up about the canner that it's like, okay, it's time to canner. We're going to go fast. So it just kind of runs together and all the cues run together. <laughs> so I, I think that's, that's just a really cool idea to really think about breaking it down, be slow, and especially doing that um, – hindquarter maneuver just at the walk. I think that that's a really good 
Yeah, and if you get ready to ask the horse to canter and you say, oh, when I get right up there, I'm going to ask him to canter. If I get there and his haunches are to the outside, there's no point in me asking him. So even if you think you're going to cue him now, you need to assess how his body is positioned and uh, because that's going to dictate the, the lead he takes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. Well, I think that kind of leads us into trotting into the canter, that reluctance to canter. When do you see that happen the most? What kind of rider has trouble trotting into the canter? Well, it's a couple of different things, um, or it could be a combination of factors. But um, sometimes it's just a cueing problem, and the rider is releasing the horse from the cue uh, at the wrong time. So the horse comes to think that what you're asking for is to trot faster. Um, And sometimes, so really, it's two different situations that could be in this category, I would say. Um, One is the horse that's sort of afraid to go into the canter, generally because the horse or the rider is demonstrating some sort of reluctance, either holding the reins too tight or picking up on the reins. Um, or sometimes even if the riders even just have reluctance, have, has reluctance in their mind, um, the horse okay. will pick up on it and um, take that as a cue he shouldn't canter because the rider is giving, actually giving them signals that they don't want to canter. Um, mm-hmm. And then sometimes it's more of a cueing problem where the horse is just, you cue the horse to canter, and what he does instead is trot faster and faster and faster and faster. Um, that's generally a, 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 a cueing and a reinforcement problem. Um, so those are the causes, I would say, of, of that horse that's reluctant to, to pick up the canter. Break that down a little bit more for me, though. When you say releasing the cue at the wrong time, what what does that actually look like? Well, a lot of compliant and well-trained horses will um, either accidentally or on purpose mistake the cue to canter um, to mean trot faster. And the rider often condones it by riding the trot. And so if the horse starts starts trotting faster and you start posting and riding along with the horse Uh, at the trot, um, what you're essentially telling the horse is the trot is what I want. So posting is a trot motion and sitting the trot is a trot motion. And um, so that sort of condones what the horse is doing. And then the secondary thing that happens is then the rider gives up and pulls back on the rein and stops. And and what the horse wants is to stop. What the horse doesn't want to do is to canter because it's harder work. So it sort of becomes a vicious cycle of the, the, the rider thinks she's cueing the canter the horse thinks, either accidentally or on purpose, she's cueing the trot. So he trots faster, and you can you you ride the trot. So he thinks that's what you're wanting, and then you stop him. So he thinks he's being rewarded. Um, sure. So the whole cycle starts over again. 
Okay. Um, so, I, all right, then. So that trotting and picking are definitely doesn't sound fun. And what can you do about it? Yeah. Well, the other cause is the rider actually hitting the horse in the mouth. And um, this happens really easily at the counter because the horse's nose sort of dives down with every stride of the counter. So as he's lifting up his back and hindquarters, his nose sort of stretches to the ground, especially on the first stride when um, he's going from no impulsion to maximum impulsion. Um, he really uh, dives his head down on that first try the most. And so if the rider does not actively give a release to the horse with each stride of canter and at the beginning, the horse hits the bit. If he's lazy and he hits the bit, he takes that as full justification for not cantering. If, <laughs> yeah. And it's your fault. And if he is sensitive and nervous and you hit him in the mouth when you've asked, you know, he feels like he's been punished for doing something you've asked him to do and he gets real scared and, and, and um, uh, develops a lack of trust. So um, for fixes, the uh, whether you're... Uh, whether it's a cueing problem or the horse's reluctance is because he's been hit in the mouth. In both instances, it's really important that the moment your horse sort of lunges into the counter and with every stride of the counter, your hands reach towards his mouth and or you can think of reaching towards his ears, but your hands have to go forward and, and down. Um, a lot of the times people... They, in their effort to reach forward, they lift their hands up. And even if you go forward and you pick up on the reins, when he's diving down into it, um, he's going to hit the bit. So you want to kind of reach forward and down towards his mouth. And um, so if it is a reluctance problem, and a lot of times I've gotten on horses that were so scared of the counter departure and getting hit in the mouth that they kind of throw the horse up there. When you cue the counter, they throw their head in the air and they kind of run in a panic. Um, those horses, right. as a training exercise, um, I'll get on them and I really exaggerate the forward release. In other words, I make the reins really loose and I, I reach as far forward as I can towards their mouth with a really loose rein, as if to say, it is impossible for me to hit you in the mouth. You can trust me. And they'll develop trust back quickly. But that's strictly a rider error that often happens in nervous riders um, or riders that are um, sometimes, if you're a little scared to canter, Right when that horse kind of rocks back and gets ready to lunge into the canter, you go <gasps> and you tense up. Oh no, at the moment. Go. <laughs> yeah, um, and it happens subconsciously. So a lot of people have no idea they're doing that, but the horse knows because his mouth is at stake. And uh, so um, you really have to, if you're in that category, just nervous riders, 
you really have to consciously make an effort to reach your hands down towards his mouth at the moment you ask him to canter. I was just going to say with the horses that have really become afraid of that pressure and if there is a nervous rider, is that some time when it helps to have someone else ride your horse a few times and promise them that they're not going to get hit in the mouth and then the rider ride again? Or what do you have to do yeah. to really make that difference That's almost seen to the horse that they're going to trust it? Um, and almost all cantering problems, um, if it's a great idea to get a more uh, skilled rider or a more confident rider to the horse um, a few times, get the horse sort of lined out and, and understanding. The, you know, horses can discriminate that in riders very quickly. When a rider is clenching, nervous, um, you know, kind of got their muscles tight and they're uh, pitched forward a little bit and their breathing is a little bit off, um, horses really detect that. So uh, a horse for, for any number of different motivations no, he knows when the rider is reluctant to do something or afraid to do something, so he doesn't really want to do it in that instance. So I can get on the horse and I can demonstrate to him with a few transitions and promise him I'm not going to hit him in the mouth, but he knows the difference between me and that other rider that is nervous and, and all of that. So the rider really has to focus on fixing herself um, and and that's that's going to be what's going to get the response in the horse. And I know you've said though sometimes people love to see you ride their horses at the canter, like just that visual image of where your hand should be, and that their horse can do this, and that maybe just watching someone else and really getting that good visual imprint of what it needs to look like could be helpful. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of uh, riders in clinics actually that. Maybe it's a new horse or maybe um, maybe not, but they have never cantered it, and um, they're afraid to because they can't. They've never done it before. You know, they've had it for a few months or a year or whatever, and they never have to the canter, and they uh, probably have, you know, visions in their head of the horse running off and bucking like he was stung by a bee or something. And um, <laughs> so often I'll get on and say, uh or I'll ask them, would you like me to counter your horse? And they generally jump all over that. And and it's good for the horse, too, because if you haven't countered a horse in a, in a long time or ever, he's long forgotten to think about the counter cue or the counter departure. So he he doesn't he hasn't had to think about what the difference between a trot and a counter cue was because go meant trot. Um, so anyway, it, a lot of times it, it helps not only for the rider to see the horse being ridden by somebody else, um, but also for the, to remind the horse, okay, here's what we're going to be doing, and this is what it feels like, and this is the cue, and this is the right answer. Um, and the, the little reminder never hurts a horse either. Okay. Let's go back for a second to the first description you gave of trotting into the canter, and you were talking about releasing 
um, the horse from the queue at the wrong time. If somebody is stuck in that reason for trotting and trotting and trotting harder and faster into the canner, you said not to post the trot, not to necessarily sit in the trot position. What should they be doing if the horse is just trotting and trotting and you want to get that canner? Well, at any time when you cue a horse to do something and he does the wrong thing, um, how you respond to that is pretty critical in, in terms of what the horse learns. Um, if so often in cueing, the horse misunderstands, I don't know, like I was describing earlier, um, maybe the horse doesn't want to canter just because he's kind of lazy, or maybe he's sensitive and, and um, detecting the reluctance on the rider. But um, the way we tell horses they're doing the right thing is is to ride them in what's called a following seat. So um, once I ask you to canter and I'm riding the canter, you should keep cantering until I quit quit riding it. Um, so if you cue the horse for what you think is cantering, trot faster, and you start posting and riding that trot and just going on at a fast trot, he thinks you gave a cue, he did it, and the cue is over. So you, and now you're riding it, so that was the right thing to do. So um, as with most instances, when you when the horse misunderstands the cue, you need to say, no, that wasn't the right answer. Try that again. And so if I cue the horse to canter um, and I make sure I have a clear cue and that my horse is set up correctly and um, I'm doing everything right, if I'm confident of that, um, then I will cue the horse. And if what he does is go go into a faster trot, um, then I will sit back, check up hard on the reins, kind of slam him back down to a walk or a very slow trot, and then immediately re-cue him again. And if he goes into a fast trot, I'll do the same thing. I'll sit back hard on him. I'll pick up on the reins hard. I'll abruptly slow him back down and say, now try that again. As long as I keep the pressure of the cue up, he'll figure out the right answer. But if he thought the right answer was to trot faster, I've got to clarify that and say, no, wrong answer, try that again. But I'm not going to release him from the pressure of that cueing um, process until he gets the right answer. So that would work, by the way, for a horse that was um, going from a slow trot to a fast trot when you cued him to canter and you're sort of having run into the trot, or when you're uh, working on that more finished horse that is going from a walk to canter or halt to canter, um, you could use that same process as well. To kind of get rid of the trot altogether and just go from the walk to Yeah, but often we have to clarify our cues, and if if the horses think he's doing the right thing, which in this case is just a trot faster instead of canter, we have to clarify that that's not the right answer. Try that again. Right. I like your example of that and your method a lot more than what I've seen other trainers do sometimes is just keep really riding the seat of the canner and lifting their hands and boot them on, boot them on. And I think especially if there's a nervous rider, the idea that you can 
take them back to a walk, but without losing that pressure, like you said, of the cue that you're still riding, you're not giving them a break down to the walk, you're immediately asking again, that allows the rider to kind of take a a little bit of a breath and regroup and make sure they're doing the right thing instead of just pounding on the horse and keeping going no matter what. Yes, sort of, but it has to be immediate. So in order for the, you know, you've got a timing issue of less than three seconds. And that applies to all phases of the cue. So um, at the moment I cue, uh, let's say I'm going from a slow trot to a canter is the cue I'm giving him. At the moment I cue him, this, and he speeds up instead of canters, and he speeds up the trot instead of canters. Um, the sooner in that process that I correct him, the better he'll learn. And then, um, so the sooner I correct him and the sooner I re-cue him, the more pressure is on him to come up with the right answer and to think about it. Um, so you cannot let any time elapse in the process, right. otherwise the horse is rewarded. So he goes, oh, every time I do that, I get to stop. No, you don't get a stop. It's right. just a check and immediate recue, check and immediate recue. Right, but just going back down to that gate, even though it's fast-paced, I get what you're talking about, it still lets you get your legs and hands in the right position. And I guess what I'm saying is sometimes I see riders just – trot and trot and trot and they're still trying to canter cue and they're trying to put their leg in the right place but the horse is trotting so then it ends up not being a clear cue at all and and so that's kind of what I was referring to is just it, it's right. not a break but it gives you a chance to to make sure you're doing that clear cue like you were when you were talking about the setting up for leads yeah and it's a it's a it's a regrouping of the horse Right, right. That's what I, I like and I think is, is different than I've heard some other people talk about. All right, let's talk about <laughs> this. These all kind of are leading into the other topic. So the last thing on your list is breaking gait. Now, now we're talking about beyond picking up the canter. Once your horse is already cantering, then deciding that maybe a trot would be easier. What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> and this is sort of... Um the uh, a different version of the same story um so the horse is breaking gate at the counter first of all no horse wants to carry a rider round and round and round at the counter um they're they're kind of lazy by nature and they don't really want to do that anyway so any excuse they can come up with not to they're going to latch on to and um Probably the two most common things that cause breaking of gait is the rider hitting the horse in the mouth on every stride, like um, we were talking about earlier, uh, when the horse's nose dies down, the rider's hands aren't moving with the horse's head. Um, So that gives the horse an excuse to stop or slow down. And then... Probably 99% of riders, when they try to turn the horse at the canter, uh, will cause a break of gait by pulling back on the rein instead of um, reaching out to the side or reaching forward in the turn. Um, so the fixes, well, also, then as far as cueing, um, what happens is 
the uh, rider makes a mistake, which gives the horse an excuse to break gait, or the horse breaks gait because he's lazy and he wants to, and um, the rider gets all discombobulated and brings the horse down to a trot or a walk, and then just simply recues the horse to canter again. And the rider thinks she has addressed the problem of breaking gait by recueing the horse and making him canter again. But from the horse's point of view, uh, it was a rewarding experience because <laughs> he got to walk or trot for a few strides and there were there was no penalty to pay. Um, and then a polite cue was reissued. So he politely picked up the counter again and the whole thing starts over when he breaks the great gate, gets just trot two or three strides and then go on. So um, it's a pattern of behavior that the rider has possibly caused but um, has also condoned in just kind of going along with it. So always we have to address the rider first and any mistakes the rider is making. Um, also, a lazy horse will uh, train you to pedal him. And so, you know, we refer to pedaling a horse when you're having to tell him to go every stride. Once you cue the horse to canter, as long as you continue to ride the canter, he should continue to canter. Um, it, if he breaks gate, he has broken a rule and he is disobedient. And so um, there has to be some acknowledgement of that as a disobedience. If I just recue the horse to continue what I was doing and I totally uh, ignore the fact that he was disobedient, then he will keep doing it. So there's no reason for him not to. So the horse needs admonishment at that point, and he needs some sort of um, what I fondly refer to as a spanking. He needs some way of knowing that you disapprove of that. And um, I would spank him in such a way, you know, either with my legs or a crop or the tail of my reins or my hand. Um, on his butt if I had to, um, that I disapprove of that, get your, get your rear end moving right now. And, um, so then the horse is penalized a little bit. He got in trouble for it. He got admonished for it. And he had to go immediately back to the counter. And if I'm as a trainer to fix this, I can fix this. Any trainer could really fast, one session really fast. Um, once the horse knows you're not going to tolerate, and he will actually pay a penalty for doing that because I'm going to make him gallop a little bit instead of just canter, um, he, the behavior will immediately go away. And, you know, like Q, my horse is a little bit lazy at the canter, especially if he hasn't cantered for a little bit or the first time we try it. I don't even have to spank him. I just go, hey, or, you know, just like, hey, we're not putting up with that. And then he's fine. He does sure. what he knows he's trying right. to do. And it's like, we don't, I call that. it doesn't have to be, you no. know, that way. Hiss and spit. So we just hiss and spit out him a little bit. Ha, you know, get up there. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, horses don't like to be thought of as a bad horse. So if you hit and spit at them a little bit, generally that gets your attention. 
So the other thing that's important to address in this breaking gate thing is if it's happening when you turn, it's because you're pulling back on the reins in the turn. Okay. And um, riders, yeah, riders are uh, have a, a a real consistent bad habit of that. That anytime they use the reins, they're pulling back on them. And um, if you want the horse to keep going, you can use what's called a leading rein, and that's reaching kind of forward with your hand and opening it to the side rather than pulling back towards your body with the rein. And um, that, um, that gives the horse more freedom to keep going. And, Julie, as you're talking about that, you know, especially people that ride alone or maybe just have their husband out with them to watch them go around, one really helpful thing if your horse is breaking gait and you either notice on the turn that it's happening, but just have them do a little cell phone video so you can see because I think so often people don't really know what they're doing with their reins. They really think they're putting their hands forward and then they look at the video of it and they realize how far back they really were. And don't, do you see that a lot? People really don't know. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, the video camera doesn't lie, and it's so easy to do now. But I would say in most instances, people have no idea um, what they are doing, and they they don't think they're pulling back on the reins. They just think they're they're turning. Um, mm-hmm. But the direct rein, which is pulling it back towards your body, opposes the horse's forward motion. So mm-hmm. a lot of times, like I was saying earlier, People think they're reaching forward to give a release, but what they're actually doing is lifting their hands up. And um, and even during my clinics, I'll say, no, don't pull back, lift up, or lift up, or lift out to the side, not back, lift up, lift out to the side. And they uh, still have trouble doing it because in their mind they are doing that, um, but in reality they're not. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, I, I totally agree. One thing I wanted to go back to here was when we were talking about the admonishment. I know we've had people on the TV show or different things say, well, I don't want to hit my horse. I don't want to, and we're not talking any kind of abuse or really, you know, harming them. But can you tell me what you usually say to people about the constant cueing versus a one-time harder correction? Well, um, yeah, there's a lot of factors, and um, one is that in in the training of animals, you always have to find the amount of pressure that motivates change, and if you, um, if the horse really doesn't want to canter, and and most of them don't, especially if they're lazy, um, something has to motivate them, and so it's just like I use the example um, a lot of if your horse bites you. Um, if he bites you and you just, you know, sort of sheepishly bop him on the neck a little bit, um, and uh, if, he's, if it's cold, first of all, he might think that's really fun. You're now playing with him. Right. And so he'll bite you again and it becomes repetitive. Um, and generally gets worse. And unless and until the horse gets a harsh enough punishment that it's no longer fun to him or that he's no longer motivated to, to bite, um, he's going to keep biting and it's probably going to get worse. So um, 
when it comes to correcting a horse or admonishing a horse, um, it, and even when I say spanking, um, it, it's really more of an acceptance issue. Um, horses are instinctively animals that seek out acceptance. They're herd animals. And they, anybody who's ever seen a new horse introduced into an existing herd of horses knows that it is not a friendly and foo-foo thing that the, mm-hmm. the, Existing horses are very mean and aggressive and even violent to the new horse, but that new horse keeps coming out back and begging acceptance. No matter what, he'll come back and beg acceptance into the herd. And in that process, he shows he's willing to be confide and he's willing to play by the rules of the herd and all of that. Um, horses are animals that, animals that seek out acceptance. If you never let them know when you disapprove of them, they quit trying to seek out your acceptance. And so if I can keep my horse in the frame of mind, and this is not, you know, we talk a lot about praising horses, and praising is really important in the equation too, but so is admonishment and um, letting the horse know when you disapprove of his behavior. And because by nature, they're animals that seek out approval and seek out acceptance, it's pretty meaningful to them. So that's why we're not talking about uh, abusive pressure with um, whips or spurs or whatever. We're talking more of an attitude of... um, letting the horse you know disapprove of them. And for one horse, that might be the slightest little, you know, just, hey, you know, knock it off. Um, for another horse, it might be require a little bit more pressure. Um, but it's, uh, it's, so it's not only finding the amount of pressure that motivates the horse to change, um, but it's also using equal amounts of praise and admon- admonishment so we keep that horse in a frame of mind to be seeking your approval. I love that. I think that that's kind of a new slate you haven't talked about quite as much, or that's more your in your behavior talks that you usually do and not necessarily applying it to, to something like this. Um, I remember we had an episode of the show from San Diego where there was a cute little buckskin horse and he wouldn't stay at the canter. Do you remember that episode? From San Diego. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Really nice rider. She got in this horse for her kids, and then he just would stand still. And I remember she had to constantly pedal, and she was a great rider. She could do it, but it was just that mental leap of, wait, I'm in charge. I asked you to do this and to really get it in her head that, the horse should travel at the gate speed direction that you ask for until you tell them to do something different. And he just needed, he needed a little crop, but one little, you know, spank with the crop and then he'd keep cantering. But what I remember the point of that episode was before that she had just constantly pedaled and pushed and re and she was like kicking the heck out of him all the time. And <laughs> she was getting more of a workout than he was. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. But just I think that that mental switch that people think, oh, I shouldn't use a crop or I shouldn't do, you know, holler or whatever. But if you can do that once, you might not have to do it every stride and you're really benefiting your horse more. And uh, absolutely. And that was a great example of, uh, of he was a well-trained and super nice tempered horse, but he had trained the rider to paddle him and that when she didn't push and paddle, he would immediately break gate. She would recue him. The whole thing went on over and over and over again. And she was a good rider and he was a well-trained horse. Um, and and the the nicer the horse is, in a way, the better it is to admonish them because um, they really want to be a good horse. Um, so it's kind of unfair to be like having an employee that was doing things wrong and never telling them they were doing things wrong. How is he mm-hmm. possibly supposed to get better? Um, but I would way rather, I talk about this a lot in clinics, um, if, first of all, if you're giving the same correction over and over and over again and nothing is changing, um, then you need to question what it is that you're doing. And the main thing you need to question is, are you using enough pressure to motivate change? Um, if you do use enough pressure to motivate change, the behavior will change rapidly. Um, so if you're giving the same cue over and over and over again and nothing's happening, chances are the same correction, I should say. Chances are you're not using enough pressure. And um, so it, it, it's kind of a simple formula, but I think it's it's far more humane to give one strong correction and be done with it than to give nagging, 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 nagging corrections where you end up in an adversarial relationship with the horse and the horse kind of learning more and more to disrespect your authority. Right. For sure. I think that's great. And, and that's kind of the topic for all of this is how can you give the clearest cue from the start, be the leader, kind of change your mindset with this instead of I've got this cantering issue with my horse and we get so focused on what the issue is. And sometimes it's just a mindset change of, I know how to ask you for the canner. I'm going to go do that. And then the horse says, oh, okay, you are doing something that's clear and makes sense. And, and that's what we're focused on, not the worry and all the other, you know, kind of psych, psych you out issues that happen in your head. And I think the horse just responds to that when you really break it down, know what you're going to ask of them and go ahead and ask. Yes, and being clear and consistent in your cueing. Um, know exactly what aids you use in the cue. Use them the same way every time and sequence them uh, because horses um, understand sequences really well and they learn them quickly. So um, really getting clarity in your cueing is so important. Mm-hmm. Good. I think that's really good, Julie. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Heidi. Mm-hmm. 
I am here today with Desiree Johnson, the owner and designer of Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. And Desiree, you have a pretty interesting story being a rider of why you wanted to create the perfect jeans for people to ride in and why there was such a need for something that felt good in the saddle. Tell me a little bit about how you got started. Well, hello, Heidi. Thank you for calling. Yes, I do. Um, this all started uh, a few years before we bought the company. Um, I was uh, very lucky to have been able to have my own stable. Um, right. I had three stalls and I uh, had a few event horses in training and my own ring and I was teaching and because I'm an event rider, okay. I was doing a lot of uh, a lot of setting up jumps and grooming the ring and you know the PP and D the poop pick up and drag and uh, all all the manual labor that goes along with the uh, four acres of mowing and uh, gardening and all of that being a wife and the shopping and and I was in my tack room one day and uh, the I was taking my britches and boots off yet once again right I thought to myself uh, there's got to be a jean out there I need some blue jeans that I can also ride in right I do so much teaching I jump up on a horse for 10 minutes then I jump down and I have to set up jumps and the, the you know, the bitches just get, get thrashed. They're too nice to work in. I mean, to really, really work in. So I went to my local ranching home. Now, remember, I'm an English rider. So I went right. to a, a store, specialty in Western, 20 different styles of Western blue jeans. And I asked the lady, I told her, I said, I want your top of the line Western riding jean. I'm not going to say the name of it because I don't want to smash it. Sure, sure. She took me to the top of the line and I looked at them and I looked at the seat area and I saw that lump, your best riding jean. She said, yes. And I said, well, these aren't riding jeans. And she looked at me, she kind of blinked. And I said, there's this big lump in the crotch seat area. And that's the whole reason why I'm here is because I can't ride in the country western dancing jeans. I need a riding jean. And she said, well, this is, this is it. And so I, you know, I went home and I declared, I said, you know what? I'm going to start my own business. It's going to be called Designed by Desiree. And I told him my story. And what I did is I went online. And at that time, I didn't find anything like what it was that I wanted, but I did find a pattern, a bookerish pattern. So I ended up, to make a, a long story short, I made three pairs of these little sweatpants, or you know, one seamless inside, to right. seam up the front and the back. And they were basically little sweatpants with little knee pads. And I wore those little jeans. I, wore, I made a corduroy pair of printer and a lightweight jean material for summer. I wore them out <laughs> two years or so, wore them holes, holes. And what I loved about them is they were short, you know, right up to the ankle. I could stick them in my English boots. And then I would take my boots off. I could work in these little jeans, pants, all day long. And I could go grocery shopping, and I could get down in the dirt and garden and do the mowing and move my jumps. So finally they, they wore out. And it was around Thanksgiving time, and uh, I said to Eric, I said, there's got to be somebody who has thought of this idea. I can't be the only one. So I sat down with Mimosa uh, at the holiday time, and I found Smooth Stride Riding Jean Company. And the mission statement and the explanation was exactly what I was looking for. And they were interested in selling the company, and Eric and I had a powwow, and we said, let's do it. And the thing that we were, we didn't know anything about the manufacturing 
clothing business, nothing. I know it was really the learning curve was incredible. The inventory that we bought that we thought we were going to be able to buy was all messed up. It wasn't graded Mm. properly and didn't fit anybody. So we basically started from scratch. I redesigned this incredible already existing jean that had the seamless inside and was a boot cut. And I made it, I recreated the whole, uh, basically the waist, contoured waistband, the grading is correct, the rise is correct for riders, for mature riders, not teenagers with, you know, that weigh 115 pounds, Mm -hmm. designed for women who have either had kids or not, but have lived with their bodies and, you know, for, for mature women have the curves that they are supposed to have once they have reached adulthood. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> now tell me, what do you mean by the grade? Is that the way that the shape changes up around your waist? Well, for instance, when we got the inventory, I had these tiny little rises and huge legs. So the legs didn't match, so the lower part didn't match the upper part. So if you have a size 10 gene, it is graded size 10 the whole length of the gene and that's uh it's a there's a science to it and so our genes are you know we hired literally hired a specialist to grade the patterns correctly okay yeah there's a lot of math you've learned lots of terminology about this and and so the big thing about these that makes them for riding what would you say are your, your top features that make them for riders not just for wearing on the street but you could do both. Yes, you could. The main thing is that cross lump in the seat area has been removed. Literally, they're, they're just like uh, how they build English riding breeches, only uh, they're Western boot cut. Second thing would be the rise in the back. It's hard to find a blue jean out there that calls itself a riding jean that has a, a correct um, rise. The contoured waistband, so it's just not a straight piece. It's also curved to shape the fit women's curve. And the stretch, it's a perfect amount of stretch. We have a special process that they don't bag out, so we've eliminated the bag out problem. So this jean that you buy will be the same size within eight hours or two days or three days. They don't, you just don't put them in the washing machine and they snap back and then bag out again. So if they don't fit, that probably means that you gained a little weight. <laughs> and, and I'm imagining what this means when you're actually on a day-long trail rider, like with you with endurance riding. I grew up riding Western. We always rode in jeans. And I remember on longer days, like the inside of your leg, it'd be a little chaff, but that's just what you had. And I think it, it's interesting to hear you say with that English or endurance perspective, everything you're thinking of has to do with how can I wear this all day, be comfortable, and make it through the miles, right? Sure. Literally, there are some of us that we get in the saddle after 10 minutes, I was not comfortable. Right. So this it's also for doctors, for instance, who just get on, who are teaching all day long. They need a safe place for their phone for emergencies because we have a beautiful old, you know, classic welt pocket on the top of the right side that mm-hmm. is, uh, doesn't have any closure to break or anything, and it fits in snugly so it's not going to flop around. So even for instructors who have to get on a horse and just demonstrate something for 10 minutes and get back off again. Right, so. and feel comfortable in what you're getting down. Because I know when I have ridden English and you're 
you're in your breeches and sometimes you're like, whoosh, should I not, I want, I don't mind riding these in the saddle, but I definitely don't want to go in public in them. So I think that's a, a great aspect too, something you can be comfortable in, but you can get on and off and still do whatever you need to do. Sure. Yeah, I I was joking in another interview I did that you could be a lawyer with a blazer in an office and then you could go straight to the barn and you wouldn't have to change your pants all day long. And thinking about the rider, not somebody that's coming from the fashion world and how to make those look good at the barn, which they look good. All the jeans can look good, but Mm -hmm. how can you find something that's going to keep you comfortable in the saddle, not have that big seam on the inside, right, where you're trying to have contact and communicate with your horse with your leg position. Feel good no matter what you're doing. I spend so much money on equipment for our horse. And so I really feel like this is a, a very valuable piece of equipment for for riders, finally. Good. Well, thank you for taking this on and figuring out something that's going to be good for a lot of riders. Thank you, Heidi. We have another podcast question for you. This is from Rachel. She says, because I'm an older rider and a bit overweight, I have trouble mounting without a mounting block. I'm afraid if I fall off or need to dismount on the trail, I might have trouble getting back on. My horse is good about standing still, but I would like some tips or even some specific exercises to build up the correct leg muscle. Great question, and certainly a problem a lot of people are dealing with. Sometimes people are just out of shape. Sometimes maybe it's because they're a little overweight. Sometimes they have an injury. And then there's just the fact that we, the older we get, the harder it gets to get up, huck yourself mm-hmm. up on a horse. Which, by the way, is the reason why my new horse is 14 too. <laughs> that was my number one criteria was short. You know, a lot of people would argue that you shouldn't go out on trail rides unless you're capable of mounting from the ground. In fact, I've, I've worked with trail ride operations that have that basic set of rules because really? the terrain they ride in is, uh, you know, perhaps dictates it. The truth of the matter is that anytime you could mount from a mounting block or a stump or a rock or whatever, it's going to be a lot easier on your horse. So the first thing always I think to consider is, is the horse. When you mount, it puts a considerable amount of torque on the horse's back. When you have difficulty mounting, that's a lot of dead weight hanging there. Uh, you know, somebody that's good at mounting is going to put very little pressure and torque on the horse's back. And so all the way at the other end of the scale, somebody that's uh, very poor at mounting, um, and particularly if they're bigger, is is going to be putting the same amount of torque on the horse's back. So that's why in most commercial operations, uh, the use of a mounting block or some kind of mounting ramp even is is instituted for the benefit of the horses more than mm-hmm. for the benefit of people. Um, if you are out of the trail, you can almost always find something to help you mount, um, you know, whether it be a log or a stump or a rock. Um, but one thing I see people do all the time, which always kind of surprises me, is they won't be, you know, there's almost always a slope to the land. Even if you're on a flat road, sure. for instance, there might be a place where there's a depression where a puddle was, and there might be a place where there's sort of a mound of dirt. 
if that horse is standing up slope from you, even by an inch or two, and you're now downhill of that horse, it's about ten times harder to mount. So be smart about always positioning the horse downhill of you. Um, you can almost always find a little bit of a slope somewhere, even in flat terrain, that uh, gives you an advantage uh, being on the uphill side. So um, I'd say to be smart in that way. Learning proper mounting technique is something that skips over a lot when people learn how to ride. Um, for instance, most people, uh, when they go to mount, they put their hand, reins in the left hand. Um, you should grab mane, as big a chunk of mane as you can, uh, so that you pull on the mane and the neck of the horse. Um, but some people will grab the horn and the cantle, which is like quadruple torque <laughs> on your horse's back. He's pulling the saddle over, yeah. Yeah, and that's, people don't, if you just watch how horses react, it'll be obvious that how uncomfortable that is for them. But um, so you want to, you know, with your left hand on the reins, grab a big old piece of fistful of mane um, down towards the base of the neck in front of the cow. And then the key to good mounting is to step up on your left foot. You, the more you try to pull yourself up into the saddle, the harder it is. If you can step up onto that left foot, which requires a lot of strength in your quads, then you don't have to pull so much. And to minimize the torque on your horse's back and to mount correctly, what you do then is you lay your forearm, you put your hand on the offside pommel and lay your forearm across the seat of the saddle so that it, your forearm and your, your hand are actually on the off side of the horse. So instead of pulling everything to the near side, what you're doing is putting weight on the off side to help balance that saddle. And then as you step up on your left foot, you push your weight on that forearm and, you know, push yourself up to the standing position with your forearm. The mistake people make is they put their left foot in the stirrup and then either because they're not used to using their left leg in that way or because their left leg isn't strong enough, they put one hand on the front of the saddle, one hand on the cattle of the saddle and kind of pull themselves up with your arm. Well, you're basically doing a chin-up then. If you can't do a chin-up, or sure, you do a chin-up. <laughs> so if you want to practice, the, the best way I know of to practice mounting is to get a tall mounting block, so uh, uh, either tall two-step or a three-step mounting block. Okay. And practice stepping up on that all the way to the top step with your left foot. So you'll stand on the um, horse side of the mounting block mm -hmm. and put your left foot all the way up there on the top step and then um, just put your hands out to the side to balance and try to step up on that step. If you can step up that big a step on your left foot, you should be able to mount anything anywhere. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, some upper body strength doesn't hurt, but you really, you'll never be able to pull that weight up with just your arms. You, you've really got to be able to step up on that mm -hmm. foot. Leg. And then the way, what, with what your arms are doing, your, you know, your forearms should be across the seat of the saddle and onto the offside so you can push 
yourself up instead of how to pull yourself up. You know, anywhere that people can start using their leg muscles more and really think of riding as a sport and something that they kind of need to train for off the horse as well as on the horse. It sounds like she's on her way to doing that, just even asking this question. Absolutely. Riding riding is a very physical sport, and we tend to think the horse, and the horse is doing a lot more work than we are, um, but you know, mounting and dismounting requires strength, and um, so certainly any time you can strengthen those, but you have kind of have to do, it's not only strength um, in that equation, it's coordination and being able to step up onto that foot and balance yourself. Um, it's done, yeah. And even people that mount well from the near side, when you go over to the off side, <laughs> I don't care how fit and strong you are, it's very awkward because you're uncoordinated on that side. Um, so there's some coordination and timing and all of that involved as well. And just even thinking of how to do that in my mind, I think that's a good thing to do as you're teaching people to mount for the first time because you have to really think through what the process is and, and how you actually do that instead of just getting on like you've always gotten on. Well, you do, and then, you know, in most riding schools and trail riding operations, they're using, um, you know, mounting areas, platforms and stuff, so people are just throwing a leg over and sitting down, not pulling themselves up from the ground, and so often these skills aren't taught, and um, it, there's skill and coordination and strength involved, so not all of that uh, means you're going to have to kind of practice it. Sure. I think the biggest thing I got out of what you just explained, though, Julie, is really thinking about how to stay over your horse's center of gravity and almost, like you said, reaching to the offside to counter the amount of weight you're putting on that that mounting side. Really think of how the horse is feeling, and I think that'll change how you move in general. Yeah, if you can bring your, your right hand to the offside pommel and then push yourself up with that, then you'll um, you'll be balancing out saddle and being a hundred times easier on your horse's back. Good. I think those are some really good tips. Thank you, Julie. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Check out smoothstride.com and find them on Facebook to thank them for making this podcast possible. Also, be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash podcasts for the full library of audio interviews you can listen to in the car or at the barn. For listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Check out smoothstride.com and find them on Facebook to thank them for making this podcast possible. Also, be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash podcasts for the full library of audio interviews you can listen to in the car or at the barn. Say love.